Thank you. So let's start with a little history here. So this is a picture of my family, my be beautiful wife, Nikki, and my four beautiful children. Um, and if we rewind a little bit from this family and go back in time before this, uh, Nikki and I uh, got married, and here's the two of us living life up. And uh, if we go rewind even further than that, we see uh, University of Washington. This is where I went to school. Um, I was a student there studying computer engineering, and that's where our story takes place today. So my story today is about miracles of healing. So in the summer after my third year at UW, I happened to be working on campus as an internship with the CIA that would have left me on the East Coast. It didn't pan out due to inadvertent scheduling. Now, up to this point, I had been a normal healthy young man, but one day I had severe chest pain. So a friend who happened to have time in a car dropped me off at the Hall Health Clinic there at UW. Doctors there took a chest x-ray and they said, oh, you need to immediately go to the ER. Um, and a police car took me the few blocks where I walked into the emergency room. In the ER, they used an echocardiogram uh, to look at my heart, they found that I had a dissected aortic aneurysm. What that means is that part of my aorta, the main blood vessel coming from the heart, had dissected or split, and blood was ballooning. My family hurried down from Bellingham to see me and prayed over me. I was rushed into emergency open-heart surgery. So they found that I was born with a bicuspid aortic valve. What that means is I had a valve, instead of having three leaflets, it had two. Um, and this caused, um, over time, this has weakened the aortic wall, or the, the side of the aorta. And we call this a miracle of healing because, well, for me, it was a matter of minutes or millimeters. The doctor said maybe I had 45 minutes or so before the aneurysm would have ruptured. And my dissected aorta was two millimeters away from my coronary arteries, which also would have been fatal. So after six hours of surgery, uh, there was no brain damage or loss of memory, despite um, all the warnings that they give you. Uh, following the surgery, I had fevers, I battled pneumonia and a pulmonary embolism, but I walked out of the hospital in a week. So through much prayer and healing, I went home for the summer, starting school again in that, that fall. So my wife, Nikki, and I, at, at the time um, we, were, we were dating, uh, I was in, we were involved with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on campus, leading Bible studies, and we saw God moving there. We had just started dating a couple months before that surgery, so you can imagine it's like a relationship time warp uh, going through all of that. So she left for a mission trip to China while I was still in the hospital. Uh, back in school at the fall quarter, I experienced mysterious fevers. Uh, when I went home to Bellingham for Thanksgiving, I woke up one day with a lot of pain in my arm. And while my mom was talking to me, she noticed that, hey, half of my face was drooping. So it was time to head back to the ER. An ambulance took me from the Bellingham ER down to UW. 
the UW Medical Center. I remember the ambulance driver telling me he had never met anyone before that had survived an aortic aneurysm. It took several days in the hospital with tests to figure out what was going on. They found that I had developed endocarditis on my prosthetic valve. It was infected. So this caused a thrombus or a blood clot to form. Uh, one headed down my arm where I had the arm pain, the other to my brain where I had experienced a mild stroke. So again, they said I needed open heart surgery to remove this disease. I felt more prepared for this second surgery, knowing more of what to expect. Nikki had organized a 24-hour prayer during the surgery um, where InterVarsity students and staff took turns praying. Some, some felt led to anoint me with oil and pray over me. Sorry, and I remember that as one of my most powerful spiritual experiences. There was even an unbeliever who prayed that he would believe if I was healed. So they replaced my infected valve. Again, I experienced firsthand God's healing power. And I'm not sure how to explain to you the miraculous nature, um, how I was so lucky in the right place at the right time. Did I tell you the first name of my skilled surgeon was Gabriel, a name meaning Sorry, a name meaning uh, God is my hero or God is my strength. So the second operation, the reoperation, was risky. Um, healing also took time, but the pain, the stroke, and the infection, it all went away. A collapsed lung, too. From there, I would lead a normal, healthy life, finishing school, getting married, and raising the family that you saw in the first picture. I just want to summarize with a few lessons um, learned from this experience. Um, one is uh, the power of prayer. Another is healing, how God wants to heal us and make us right with him. There are several scriptures of God healing our spiritual hearts. Uh, humility, if you have ever had major surgery, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's times when you can't get out of bed yourself, and your major task for the day is using the bathroom by yourself or taking your first shower. Uh, frame of reference is another lesson. Uh, life is short. I was 21 years old when this uh, happened to me. And then finally, Nikki being the right one for me with her patience, uh, trust in the Lord, and her support. So thank you for listening to my story. So this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from verses 2 through 13 from Ephesians chapter 3 in the New International Version. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery 
is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word of the Lord. Just a special thank you to Jeff for that powerful story this morning and a reminder of how a faith community and prayer works in a very mysterious way. So I cannot tell you to date how many sermons I have preached, but I can tell you one thing is that every time I go to the scripture text on initial read, I think I know exactly what I'm going to preach on. And then as time and revelation happens, the message becomes completely different. I say this, so if you happen to read the one-sentence teaser in the loop, that's our weekly newsletter about the sermon, and that's why you're here this morning, that is not the message you're going to hear. I blame God, and so take it to him. He had a different plan for what this morning would be. Within our scripture passage this morning, I was immediately struck by the word mystery, especially when it is paired with Christ. Often I am discouraged and discontent with our prevailing Christianity that seems to have tamed Christ, withdrawn from his DNA all mystery, and made him very palatable. Before I became a believer, this was my biggest hurdle. How could I worship and put a claim on God if I knew everything about him? Wouldn't that make me the God then? I think we Christians do this because believing in something we don't quite fully understand can seem foolish. But we undermine and potentially jeopardize the mysterious workings of God in our faith community when we reduce God to our own level of understanding. For example... When we simplify the sacraments of the church, Holy Communion and Baptism, to mere symbols, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to experience the mysterious workings of God through these elements, and we diminish the grace that is received. In the author's letter to the church in Ephesus, he reveals part of the mystery of Christ— that Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promises of Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell the people, in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The writer is speaking to people in the first century, 
where lines and divisions were drawn all over the place, especially within the Jewish community. People were elevated in society based on their gender, rankings within the faith community, and their adherence to religious practices. They were cast out if they were disabled, seen as unclean, or had a lowly position in life like that of a shepherd. But the least of the least were the Gentiles, for they were seen as unacceptable to God, outside of God's promises and bounty. This message that Christ came, died, and was resurrected for all people, even the Gentiles, was jarring to say the least. However, I do not think we are much different than our first century counterparts. What does 21st century Jesus look like to you? We have our own lines and divisions and our own idea of who is welcome into the kingdom of heaven and who is not. And this is all based on how we view God. For many of us, we might make Jesus into an American. For some, he's a Republican, and for others, he's a Democrat. To some, he would drive an American-made automobile, and for others, he would be in a hybrid or bike his way around. There are some who would see him as a prominent leader within the church, and others who would think he would never even step foot in the door. We all, in one way or another, make Christ into our own image. We make him into somebody we would want at our dinner table. But we forget, it is not our table that Jesus is invited to, but it is God's table that we are invited to. Jesus is not looking to be welcomed into our world, but the mystery is we are welcomed into his I like to think of myself as the liturgical pastor on staff. Peter, pastor Peter recently said this in our staff meeting, and I wore it as a badge of honor. Perhaps it's the pastor kicking it old school. Um, I'm always the one that wants to add elements of the high church, as they say, to our church services. This means to adhering to more of a traditional form of worship, emphasizing sacraments and more formal liturgy. I do love the organ and the hymnal, but I wasn't always like this. I came to faith in a Southern Baptist church, regularly attended a United Methodist contemporary church service for my first year as a Christian, and planted myself for my four years of college in a non-denominational church. I'm a Christian mutt, if you will. It wasn't until I went to seminary that I attended my first church that took communion on a weekly basis, followed the weekly lectionary, the prescribed scripture text for the week, and ordered worship around the church year. At first, I found it stuffy and old-fashioned. It was new to me and didn't fit into how I thought worship was supposed to be. And to be honest, I found taking communion every week kind of annoying. But as time went on, I came to see the beauty and the significance in the structure. As one of my friends put it, when I lack the words to speak, I can rely on words that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, 
have ushered people into worship and brought comfort. Taking that weekly communion forced me to think about what it meant to come to the table. What was the deeper meaning of this sacrament? For communion had been a bit of a mystery to me. No one had ever explained its significance, and I had not taken the time to look into the meaning for myself. It was on the eve of Christ's crucifixion that this meal was instituted. It was during the Passover meal, a time when the Jews celebrated and commemorated God passing over their homes and sparing their lives, that Jesus took the bread and the cup and instituted this new ritual within the church. Those seated around the table could not fully comprehend what Jesus was doing. A commentator said, no doubt the disciples around the table had Israelites' freedom from slavery in mind. But they did not grasp that Jesus was about to undergo a new exodus and and inaugurate his reign as Lord and Savior of all. Jesus would liberate all humanity. This is the mystery that the writer of Ephesians emphasized to the church. And it is the same mystery that is revealed to the church when we take communion. As one biblical scholar put it, The meal is a sign that redemptive grace and forgiving love will always be the constant in humanity. A journal article I read this week was titled, Has Everyone Been Served? The author titled it after what his pastor says at the commencement of each communion service, wanting to ensure that all those who desired the meal could partake. He used it, the author used it as a metaphor to shed light on what we Christians are called to do, to ensure that all people have heard this message. Christ came to liberate all humanity from sin and death. Yet we cannot spread the message if we do not believe it first and foremost for ourselves. There are those of us who struggle to believe this truly is a gift for all people. We see those hurting in our world, people who pose threats to our own safety and security, people who inflict violence on innocence, or just people who are different than we are. We can't imagine them worthy of God's grace. We can't imagine God loving them. And then there are those who struggle to accept this gift from God for themselves. We believe our sin and failures define us more than the reality that we are children of God, forgiven and deeply loved. This is where the administration of God's grace and the mystery of Christ comes into play. No matter how many sermons you hear, I believe the truth that you are forgiven, loved by God, and called to be a part of Christian community cannot be more perfectly proclaimed than through Holy Communion. For when we come to the table and we receive the bread and we receive the cup, the words, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you are spoken over us. As one theologian put it, the supper pointed to a better world that could be created by a better humanity.
There will always be mystery in who God is. But we are never a mystery to God. Jesus knew just who he was dying for. All of our sin and weakness. All of our shame and betrayal. He knew it all and still invites us to his table. God earnestly seeks after all humanity and desires that they eat the bread and drink the cup. And at this shared meal, people all over the world would experience unity in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. We give all thanks and praise to you, O God, for in great love you have made us your children and destined us for life in union with your Son, Jesus Christ. You are the creator of heaven and earth and the author of life. You revealed your purposes through the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, and declared your intention to suffer as a servant among us so that you might bring about forgiveness to all nations. In Jesus Christ, there is no sin, and you have revealed to the world to take away our sin. All who repent and turn to you, O holy God, their sins are wiped out through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we, your children, believe our sins are forgiven and be at peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.